Father, we pray that your spirit would now come and illuminate our hearts, our minds, uh, our whole being, so that we come to feed on your word and see you. We pray as Paul did, the eyes of our heart will be enlightened, that we would see you and be moved to respond to your love and goodness, your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Really good to see you. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'm Tim. I'm the new vicar here. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's really good to, to see you. Uh, if you. If you don't know me that well, um, one of the things I need to confess to you is that I, uh, I support Fulham Football Club. Uh, actually, there's not been so much of a confession this last season, um, so much as a triumphal privilege. And... Um, <laughs> Um, we, we sing a song, the, the gathered ranks of the Hammersmith End, uh, several thousand of us, and we sing a song when we're playing well, when we're winning, we're maybe two or three goals up, and uh, we, we stand to our feet and we sing this song, and it's, it's, um, it's always struck me, I mean, I, I go along with it, I just join in, you know, I, I, I use a sort of affected Fulham fan voice, you know, and it's super Fulham, yeah, I, 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 I just I inhabit this sort of alter ego me, and... Um, <laughs> I love it as a song that has the word, you know, it's all these kind of, you know, these Hammersmith oiks, uh, and, and, yet, and yet we sing a song with the word super in it. <laughs> it's super Fulham, super Fulham, super Fulham FC. We're by far the greatest team the world has ever seen. And we, and we repeat that over, it's super Fulham. So they could really teach us to worship. I mean, they use their whole bodies. Their, their arms are aloft like that. And they, they go, super Fulham. They kind of sway a little bit. They go, super Fulham FC. And then for emphasis, they go, for the by far, we're by far the greatest team the world has ever seen. They go like this, we're by far. Like that. And they, they kind of throw it. It's like, it's like the voice isn't enough. The body needs to come in as well to throw the words. Because the opposing fans are at the other end of the, of the stand. So we want them to know that they are in the presence of by far the greatest team the world has ever seen. And we amuse ourselves by singing that uh, from time to time. <laughs> but I reflect, I reflect, I just reflect on the, on the lyric of that. And I, you know, there I am going, you know, we're super Fulham, super Fulham FC, we're, we're by far, by far, by far the greatest team by far the greatest team that the world, the whole world has ever seen. And I kind of stand there going, do we? <laughs> do we actually believe this? Do we, do we really think this is true? Like, by far the great, we're talking the, the Brazil team that won the 1970 World Cup. We're better than them, really? Or the Invincibles, the 19, was that 2004 Arsenal? Or the, the Man United side that did the treble? Really? We're, we're by far greater than them. I mean, I mean, deep down, if you, because we, we probably sort of, every now and then we'll lose a game, we file out, and we're always complaining, oh, it was this fault, they fault, they picked the wrong team, didn't lift something. We're always complaining about Fulham. Like, you'd never believe as you listen to the mumbles leaving, leaving the ground when we've drawn or lost, which occasionally happens. Uh, you'd never believe that we, we'd just sung, we're by far the greatest team in the world. I mean, we're kind of, you know, we, we live with this sort of, we, we live with this kind of dichotomy, this sense of, of self-delusion. But I want to suggest that maybe us Fulham fans are not the only ones. Maybe God's people are also deluded. Psalm 46, uh, and I think it's going to appear on the screen. And it says here, I don't think it will be on the, on the, um, 
on the text there, but it's in the Bible, so you see it there. Um, for the director of music, that's the equivalent of Matt back in the day, um, uh, uh, of the Sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, not quite sure what that is, a song. This is a song. They sang this. So again, so probably, you know, and it's a song of confidence that extols, yeah, it's like we're by far the greatest church, people. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way, though mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging, whatever's going on in our world across in the United States, is that the 28th school shooting this year? Please, God, what is going on in our world? Or the war in Europe? Fake truth, lies, propaganda. It's extraordinary. We celebrate this um, monarch, and I—I I mean, I'm, I'm not—I'm not a great royalist. I'm not an anti-royalist, I'm not, but I'm not a great royalist. But wow, I just that image of her mourning on her own, her lifelong companion, her husband, while we know that the evening before one of the many parties had taken place. What what character? What example? Amid the muddle that's going on elsewhere. All this stuff going on in the world. And yet, there's a confidence. Where does this confidence come from? Verse 4 of Psalm 46. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. So the city of God is, is they held to be Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount, the temple, in the temple, the sanctuary, God's presence. God lives amongst us in the temple, in the city, we are God's people who can shake us. We're by far the greatest people that God has ever made. <laughs> they might have sung. And how do we know that? Because, verse 4, there is a river that runs through. There is a river. Is there a river that runs through the city? No, there isn't. Well, yeah, I know, but keep singing it anyway. Anyone been to Jerusalem? Natural city? Yeah. Yeah, they, they, they draw water from wells, but there's no river. Babylon had a river. Nineveh had a river. Many of the cities and towns of, of, of ancient Near East and even Jesus' state make sense that they were, of course, you'd, if you want to congregate a whole load of people and help them to survive, you, you need to irrigate the land to grow your crops in order to feed and sustain them. So it makes sense that most cities, towns have a river. Does Jerusalem have a river? No. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place for the It's like by far the greatest team in the world, Fulham. Are we by far the greatest? No. Is there a river in Jerusalem? No. Poor deluded people of God. Let's be honest, just for a moment. Is that us? If, if we're really honest. Do you, do you ever, I, I, again, I'll confess this. I, I know I'm meant to be leading and giving confidence to you people. I, <laughs> so I sort of, I, but sometimes I, I, sometimes I sort of go next door, next where I live, and I sit down and I sort of think, what have we just done? Really? I sort of invite people into this weird building, odd shape, where we kind of indulge in, in kind of 1980s soft rock karaoke. Which is <laughs> <laughs> sort of stand and sing to a screen. And, and, and once a month, as our tradition, I give you a little round disc. And I, I ask you to cup your hands sort of reverently, and I give you this little disc, and I tell you that this little disc is Jesus' body, and I invite you to eat it. 
Oh, but not before you've dipped it in a little, I bring this wine glass made of silver, and it's got a little puddle of non-alcoholic wine in the bottom of it, and I kind of generously offer it towards you, and you, you dip the little disc in the little puddle of wine, and then you eat it together, and I invite you to eat Jesus and drink his blood. And that, apparently, is meant to sustain you as you consider how you're going to confront the cost of living crisis or where you'll find your next job or who you will marry or how you'll deal with stress and anxiety in your day-to-day life. Apparently, eating a little round disc will sustain you in that. Sometimes, just to add to the weirdness, if you've got a young infant and you'd like to mark that infant as belonging to this weird congregation, then you present this infant to me. And even though you do your level best with the sort of inclement weather that we have in this country to protect the infant from getting wet from the rain, you'll gladly bring the infant into the middle of the building and you'll give him to this weird man who has a sort of cup thing and he dips it into a bowl of water and lavishly pours water all over the infant's head three times. And apparently, that's the best way to start the whole of the rest of your life, by being soaked by a stranger. And singing karaoke once a week, on, is, is, that's meant to sustain us during the week, inspire us to live. Really? We're by far the great... No, we're not. Is this, is this real? Is, does this stuff work? That's why we need Ezekiel. Ezekiel, that we've titled this series, Restoring Hope, because hope had certainly been lost. I, I, I just encourage you, if you missed Will's excellent talk last week, uh, just with the visual aid of the, of, you know, the, the, the remnant, this was Babylon up here, and the remnant way away from Jerusalem, but Jerusalem itself and the temple being as desecrated and emptied. Uh, it's just a, a little sort of candle, apologetic candle representing the, the presence of God. It's just the whole thing, just desolate. And Ezekiel's speaking into that context to restore hope to the remnant. How does he do that? How does Ezekiel restore hope? Well, he goes straight to this image of water, of this longing for a river. It's figurative in Psalm 46. There is a river. We'd love a river. But it's, we'd love what the river and water represents. Water is life-giving. Water restores. Water refreshes. And because there is life, water brings hope. It symbolizes hope. So here is our reading from Ezekiel 47. The man, this is a, uh, he's appeared in chapter 40. He's the uh, angel. He's kind of given um, Ezekiel a tour of the, the temple that's going to be built. Actually, just on that, this is um, chapters 40 to 46. Uh, elaborate, one might be tempted to say very detailed, slightly boring, almost irrelevant details of the temple. And if you actually go through it painstakingly, as commentators have on my behalf, um, you'll, you'll realize they're incomplete plans. They're detailed plans, really detailed plans. But if you, if you tried to build the temple according to the plans in 40 to 46 of Ezekiel, you'll have a half-baked building. And the point is not to give an, like an architect or a surveyor's a sort of um, uh, you know, uh, resume of, of, of how the temple will look. The, 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 the point of you know, some detail, but not all the detail, is to point to the holiness of God. In other words, Ezekiel is saying this, this place points to just how special God is. Never forget. 
Don't segregate him to sort of sideline him to the periphery of your life. He is, he's key. He's crucial. And then in, in chapter 47, the man brought me back. And now this is a new vision of the temple, but it's a new emphasis, a new perspective, a new way of seeing what God wants to say to his people, how he wants to bring hope. So here we are, Ezekiel 47. The man walked me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me round the outside to the outer gate facing the east, and the water was trickling from the south side. As the man uh, went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. And when I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down, towards, uh, to, down to the Arabah where it enters the Dead Sea. And when it enters into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There'll be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. People will fish along the shore from Engedi to En Eglame, and there will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and the marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees and all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. It's a vision of life. And the life emanates from the temple. God's, uh, just through the, the, the book of Ezekiel, God's spirit departs from the temple in, in, a, in a previous vision. The, the, the temple is, is just a pile of brick and stone. It's, it's nothing special. God has left the building. And then subsequently we read in uh, Ezekiel's series of, of oracles and visions, the glory returns. And, and with God returning to the temple, life. A trickle, then a stream, then a river, then a torrent. Life. This is the source of hope for the people of Israel. Ezekiel's bringing God's perspective, God's truth. So there isn't a river in Jerusalem. And yet, what, Ezekiel, what God is saying through the prophet Ezekiel is there, there is a river that flows through the temple. It's, it, it's even more real than if you actually had a river. So you could, have, you, know, you could grow crops and there would be real trees and, and you could irrigate the land on a, in a physical sense. There's something even more life-giving than that. There's, there's spiritual life that is a source of all life flowing from the temple. Hold on to that vision, Ezekiel says. And this finds fulfillment. Ezekiel's uh, vision finds fulfillment in Jesus. John 
of all the Gospels, John, I guess, picks this up most clearly. Um, really early on in his Gospel, so John chapter 2, um, we have what he calls the first sort of sign that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus performs a number of signs in, in John's Gospel. Signs point you to something of significance. They're, they're not, you know, you see a sign for the motorway. You don't, you don't, you don't drive to the sign. You, 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 ah, the sign will take me to the motorway. That's what I really want. And there are lots of signs in John's Gospel that point to what we really want. God living amongst us. And so this first sign, he goes to a wedding. Heaven often pictured as a wedding, and in this wedding, the, the wine's run out. Oh, no. And so you probably know the story. He just orders the guys to get these um, big, massive sort of pitchers of, of uh, ceremonial washing water. You wouldn't want to drink people, water that people are washing their feet and washing themselves in. And he gets that, and it's transformed into the best wine. The guy saying, normally you serve the best wine first and then, you know, when everyone's had enough, you, you bring out the dregs. No, you don't the other way around. You bought the best wine till last. It's a kind of sign of, of, of the, you know, we live life now. We can live life abundantly, but the best is yet to come. Heaven, it's often pictured as a, a wedding, a feast. And, and so this is the first sign Jesus enacts. And, and it kind of troubles a bit. He then goes into the temple and turns over the tables. And people go, hey, who are you? What's going on here? And so they question him in verse 22, sorry, verse 18 of um, chapter 2. Then the Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, and bear in mind, the, the uh, rebuilding of the temple took about 46, 50 years. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he'd said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Notice that. They believed the scripture. They held to these Old Testament prophecies that they were longing to see fulfilled. They, they believed in Ezekiel's word which they'd held and incubated over the centuries and the words that Jesus has spoken. So when Jesus says, destroy this temple because actually what you really want, what will really bring you hope is not a pile of elaborately built brick and stone and mortar. You can destroy all this and you'll still have what you want because he's speaking of himself. And they, they remember the scripture and remember his words. And of course, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. But Jesus is crucified and on the third day he's destroyed. And on the third day he's rebuilt. And they realized the hope that we're longing for, that we're thirsting for, the, the real meaning, true truth, it's not located in, in the habits and patterns and rituals, good as they are, in the signs, good as they are, but in the reality, <clears throat> the reality of, <clears throat> the reality of, I think I've done it, no, maybe I'll just have a swig. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, good, thanks. In the reality of Jesus' presence himself, just, just flick on a few more chapters to John chapter 7. 
And uh, pretty much the whole of John chapter 7 takes place in the context of a, a feast. They had people in Jesus' day, you probably, I'm sure you're aware, they would have holy days where we get our holiday, a break from work, a break from the typical pattern. Um, and they would break for seven days, ten days, and all the little villages and hamlets and so on would, would, would come and converge on Jerusalem and they would um, celebrate and socialize and feast and party. But there was nearly always a sort of theme, just as we have, you know, parties with a, with a theme sometimes. So they had, and this is, you can see from in the NIV anyway, at the top of chapter 7, Jesus goes to the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacles or booths. And what they used to do was they would gather and the theme here was to remember where we've come from and to look forward to where God is bringing us. And they'd come out of, out of slavery and out of Egypt. And for the 40 years, they were, they were kind of nomadic in the desert before entering the promised land. And they would just live in temporary makeshift tents and so on. It was, it was, it was not permanent the desert wanderings. And so they would make these booths or sort of tents and sleep in them, sort of live in them while they were at the feast to remember that that's where they were, the Feast of Tabernacles. But at the same time, they would look forward. And one of the great rituals in the Feast of Tabernacles took place in the temple. So they'd, they'd come out of their nomadic existence remembering that that's where they were and they'd gather in the temple. And the priest would get a great big pitcher of water, great jar of water. And um, you should know the, the, the sort of altar where they would make the sacrifices, priests would make sacrifices, was a kind of centerpiece of, uh, of the temple, much as in many churches the, the table is the kind of centerpiece where we remember the, the ultimate sacrifice, Christ, uh, is the centerpiece of, of many churches. And um, the altar was, it was on a sort of slightly raised part of the temple because in order to just, you know, you, you slice open a pigeon or a lamb or a goat or whatever it is, blood and entrails and all that kind of thing. So there was an elaborate sort of gutter system in the temple going from the altar. There'd be, there'd be sort of a guttering system. So you could just, again, wash and just, you know, brush it all away, clean the temple out. And so they'd make use of that drainage system. And he'd pour the great jug of water over the altar and the water would run down the gutters and out of the temple, and out through the doors and the gates, bringing to mind Ezekiel 47, where Ezekiel has this vision of a stream, and then a, a, a river, and so on, flowing out of the temple. So they've gone from, this is where we were, and they come into the place of worship, and this is where we long to be, with the river of life. <coughs> river of life. Oh dear. <coughs> Yeah, thanks. Mm. So sorry. <clears throat> oh, now what's happened? Come out, right. Yeah, so that, so that happens year on year, every Feast of Tabernacles. And they look forward to that. They're looking forward to the bit where the, you know, where the priest does the water bit and the water runs out. And you remember Ezekiel? Yeah, the river of life. Restoration, healing, fruit, meaning, purpose. And this is in Jesus' day when the Romans are occupying the land. They're longing for the time when you know, get rid of the Romans, when God is the God of the whole nations and God is with us. And this, we don't have to symbolize water running because we have God's very presence flowing out of us. 
And into that context and that longing for hope, Jesus says this. Verse 37 of chapter 7. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood in the temple, bear in mind, and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And then John adds to sort of help us. By this he meant the spirit whom those who he believed in him whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. What did we celebrate last Thursday? Ascension. We remember that Jesus was raised, raised from the dead at Easter and ascended into heaven, into glory. Jesus has been glorified. We marked that last Thursday. And then, some days later, as promised, pours out his, pours, notice the verb, pours out his spirit. So that what he promises here, if you're thirsty, longing for meaning, purpose, rootedness, for a, for a kind of efficacy of your life, that your life counts for something, that you're part of a great story of blessing in your place of work, in your neighborhood, in this city, as we join ourselves here with countless other worshiping communities in this city and across this nation and across the land. But that has meaning and weight and effect. It's, it's, it's because Jesus has fulfilled Ezekiel's prophecy. The, the promise of, of, of a river flowing from the temple. Jesus stands in the temple and has already said, in effect, you don't need the building. Come to me. God's blessing, God's hope, God's shalom is not located in a building, but in a person. You don't go to a place. You go to a person. You go to Jesus. Just to, to bring this to conclusion, Revelation, that, that great vision of God's completing work, a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21. This is John's revelation and he sees verse 21, uh, chapter 21, verse 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be, will, will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. There's a new heaven and a new earth. And, and in this kind of, sort of vibrant vision of God with his people as one thing that you may miss, I missed until I was doing the kind of preparation for this. Just over the page, verse 22. In, in this new vision of a, a new heaven and new earth, of God with his people, supplying hope, quenching their thirst. Verse 22, John, I did not see a temple in the city. Ah. <laughs> There's no need 
for a temple in the city if you have the lamb seated on the throne, the one who says, come to me and I will give you water to live from you. As you come to me and I in you, John 15, the vine image, abide in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Life will course through your veins, through your consciousness, through your imagination, through your work and effort. As you release Jesus into your consciousness, as you pray that he soaks your subconsciousness so that you become like him, streams of water. Revelation 22 verse 1, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. There it is. Psalm 46. There is a river. No, there isn't. Yes, there is. <laughs> yes, there is. Flowing down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There'll be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. There's a refrain, final thing, and then we're going to worship and pray. And, and just open ourselves, those of us who are thirsty in whatever way, or for whatever, you are thirsty for more of God. We're going to just create space for us to come to God. But just the final sort of bookend on Ezekiel, there's a, there's a phrase he, I think, it, I can't remember now how many times it was on the notes I gave out originally. It was something like 54 times throughout the book of Ezekiel. There's a refrain time and time again at the end of each oracle, of oracles of judgment, of, of sort of consequence, you know, if you do this, then this will happen. As well as, as when God acts and there's fresh hope. And time and again, this phrase, then they will know. Then they will know. And as this river, this vision of the, the river flowing, then they will know. You will know. I will know. Even when the world around us doesn't make sense. I was talking to a couple this morning, a little child, baptized him recently. Uh, endless trips, very premature, miracle really, he's alive. Endless trips into hospital. They are tired, they're frustrated, they're, when will this end? And, and yet they bring themselves into the community of faith. They, they just determine with their frustration and anger. And I just say, vent it speak it it's the the psalms are full of it absolutely that's where you're at and you and you come because you know there is there's a there's a greater hope <clears throat> there's greater potential there's there's so much more that you know you can step into even though you don't experience it now just hold on cling with the people of God and the river as you do that come to him with your thirst and streams of living water will flow I'm thirsty. Actually, I really am thirsty. <laughs> dry, slightly dry throat, but it's more than that. It's more than that. We've, I just, I just 
for us here, we, you know, we're on the eve of, uh, there's another talk for another time, it's coming soon, but just what we could do and release the, the, the streams, just seeing streams going in various directions and increasing in intensity and life-giving potential. I'm, and I'm longing for that. I've been here, I'm not that new, I've been here 17 years, and it, some of that has been quite hard graft to get to this place, and I'm longing for the next stage. Not that what is or what's been before hasn't been good and proper and in its time, but just I'm thirsty for more, Lord. And I can't do it on my own. And I need you, Lord. And I want you, Lord. And I believe that as I give myself to you, streams will flow through me and through those who stand with me as we stand together. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Why don't we stand?